appreciate the prayer that's been offered by our brother and the Lord Jesus Christ. I would petition you and, and plead with you that you would pray for us during this time that we'd stand before you. Our hope is this morning that uh, every word that come forth from our lips would be glorifying to our God in heaven and also edifying to the congregation that's, that's gathered together. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I, I hope and trust that you do. I want to encourage everyone to bring your Bible to the house of God. Please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to begin this morning by reading the first six verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And our intention this morning is for us to consider spiritual communications. Spiritual communications. Here in these first six verses, we find four different types of spiritual communications. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul and Silvanus. That's another way of saying Silas. Paul and Silas. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, which is another way of saying Timothy. Under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. When you consider communication, communication is a sharing of information, knowledge, sharing a thought from one person to another. I mean, there's many different ways in today's world we can communicate with one another. You know, teachers communicate with students. Parents communicate with children. Children communicate with their parents. We communicate with, with our friends. But you know, until about 75 years ago, communication was basically carried at, at the same speed. Have you ever thought about maybe in the days of Daniel? Like in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, when Daniel told us of a time when people would go to and fro and knowledge would increase. In Daniel's day, the, the quickest communication from, from one city to another was just the speed of a horse, as fast as a horse could ride. I mean, a king in one kingdom could write a letter, hand it to a man on a horse, and as fast as that horse could ride, that communication would go to the next kingdom, town, and then come back. You know, that speed of communication was basically the same up until about 75 years ago. If you back up before World War I, that was basically the speed of communication. I realized there was a time there that Morse code became more and more popular. But up until 7,500 years ago, it was basically the same speed. How much has changed in the last 7,500 years? You know, now we live in a time when communication is like that. You know, my wife could take me to the airport to fly to a different city miles and miles away, and I can get on an airplane and actually be in that city before she gets back home here in Unionville. I can pick up a telephone that's 
on my side. Some of you carry it in your pocket. And I can make a telephone call to someone in California just, just like that and communicate with them. You know, we live in a time when we can take information that we have and, and use different types of platforms and, and communicate with people all over the world. And you know, when we consider this ability of communication, it has positives and it has negatives. There's positives to having abilities to communicate, but there's also negatives. You know, positive is I can call my mom and talk to mommy any day that I want. I can call a friend even if they're on the other side of the world and, and talk with them and check and see how they're doing. But there's also negatives. The negatives is there's a lot that we hear about in the world that it really doesn't do us a lot of good to know about. But just at our fingertips now, information from all over the world can be received just, just like that. Have you ever thought about how peaceful it may be if we didn't know some things? You know, there is some peace in just not knowing some things. And you may say, Brother Ronnie, could you illustrate that? Let me give you an illustration of peace and not knowing some things. My little girl, Sarah Beth, I walked into the bathroom in the middle of the house one day. That, she calls that her bathroom. You know, that's where she and Jennifer keep all their, you know, ladies' goods, all the things for their hair, makeup, and stuff like that. And I rarely go in that bathroom. But I walked in one day in that bathroom. I was going to help Sarah Beth, you know, brush her teeth. She was having a hard time getting her toothpaste out. And there on the counter, there's this little bowl that has these little placards, these little things where you floss your teeth. And so Sarah Beth, she's brushing her teeth, and I picked up one of those placards, and I started using that. And Sarah Beth said, oh, that's what that's for. I said, yes. She said, oh, I've been using those to clean from under my toenails. <laughs> And I said, Sarah Beth, that's, that's not what that's for. She said, oh, dude, it's okay. I put them back. <laughs> now, I would have had much more peace in my life not knowing that. Sometimes not knowing can give you, give you peace. You know, today we have many platforms where we have advantages, even telling the truth. But those same advantages can be used for people that are not telling the truth. And people that usually don't tell the truth are more bold and aggressive and sometimes can gain, gain advantage. All these forms of communications have positives and they have negatives. Well, here in this first chapter of the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, we read about spiritual communications. And all of these are positive. Why? Because anything that comes from the Lord and anything that's, that's of God, there's no negative about it. It's all it's all good. And it's good for us, the, the children of God. Now, when we think about the Apostle Paul and his efforts in preaching the gospel, the Apostle Paul basically went on three different missionary journeys preaching the gospel. I did not say Paul was a missionary Baptist. <laughs> he was just a disciple of the Lord that believed the truth that would go on missions to inform children of God of the truth of salvation by grace and grace alone. And the Apostle Paul gave his life to that. If you remember in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, it was he and Barnabas that went forth preaching the gospel, and they did, and churches were established. Antioch, Lystra, Derby, churches being established. Well, then they came back home. And when they came back home, they told all the brothers and sisters how the Lord had blessed them in their journey and how God was, was good to them. And so in Acts chapter 15 at the end, Paul and Barnabas had a, little, had a little difference on who to take with them. And ended up the Apostle Paul would take Silas with him and he went on another missionary journey and the first place he went was Macedonia, Philippi. The second missionary journey was, began in Acts chapter 16. Then finally in Acts chapter 18 there in verse 23, the Apostle Paul went on a third preaching the gospel. Well, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, somewhere in the middle toward the end of his first missionary journey, he came to this, this, this city of Thessalonica, which is to the north end of the Aegean Sea. 
to the north end of the Mediterranean. And they were children of God already there. <laughs> and the Apostle Paul preached the truth to them. He, he even debated with them in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, telling them and alleging to them the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he, he died and gave himself for his people's sins and was buried and, and rose again. And these believers, they were baptized and there was a church that was there. When we read about this, this people here, the Apostle Paul writes to, we're reading about people that were believers, but people that faced, faced opposition. And people that faced troubles, just as if we're going to believe the truth and stand up for what's right here in this world, you're going to face troubles. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to teach them, to encourage them, that they'd be strengthened and established concerning the truth that they have, that they have held. Here in this first chapter, I've already mentioned, there's four different types of communication that's taught us here in these verses we've read. If God would be our helper, I'd like to first think about this, this congregation here of the Thessalonians, here in Thessalonica, and these four different types of communications that they enjoyed. And maybe these four types of communication would find a resting place in your heart, in your experience as a child of God here in the year 2021. The first type of communication I want you to notice is in verse 3. The Apostle Paul said, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Notice these words, work, labor, patience. These are words of action. These are words that tell us of something that's happening, that's doing. You know, there's a principle that's taught in Scripture, and if, and if we could just grasp this, this one principle, it'll help us in our study of God's Word for the rest of our lives, and it's this. Life always precedes action. We must first have life before we move. When we read about individuals who have a work of faith, a labor of love, and have patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's telling us about people that are born again, that God has imparted life to them. Yes, they were chosen before the foundation of the world. They were predestinated to be with the Lord in His image one day in glory. Jesus Christ came into the world and paid for all of their sins on the cross of Calvary. And the Holy Spirit has applied that salvation to them by imparting the life that is in God in their hearts so that they are now alive and able to work, labor, and show forth patience in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a good question. How did they, how did they get to this point? How do we get to a point where we're able to to work and labor and have patience in the Lord. I mean, the Bible teaches us that faith is the fruit of the Spirit, not the root of the Spirit. And we know that God is the, the originator and the author of hope. And if we have hope in Him, it's only because He has imparted, given us that hope in our hearts. And if we have labor of love, love again, one of the fruit of the Spirit. If we love God, it only gives evidence that He first loved us and has put that love in our hearts, how did they get to this point? The only way is if God himself has communicated directly love himself in them. Do you know that's one of the major differences between the primitive Baptist and others out in the world? The primitive Baptists do not stand up and say everybody that didn't believe what we believe are going to hell. That's not true. There's no primitive Baptist that's ever preached that. Not a sound primitive Baptist. I told someone once, he was talking to me about salvation and us being in heaven. I said, look, brother, I believe everyone that you believe is going to be in heaven, I believe is going to be in heaven, but there's some, a lot, that I believe is going to be in heaven that you don't. Why? Because the way you're teaching that salvation is applied to a person only has a few in heaven. The way I teach it, by the direct work of the Holy Spirit, the direct work of God, has many in heaven. 
And these people have got to this point of showing forth faith, work of faith, labor of love, having patience and hope, because before that, before they worked, before there was labor, before there was patience, it was God himself that directly imparted eternal life to them, them, directly. I've said this many times in the pulpit, John chapter 3 and verse 8, when Jesus is conversing with Nicodemus, he said, The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou canst not hear the sound thereof, or tell from whence it cometh, or whither it goeth. So is every one that's born of the Spirit. What is Jesus saying? Every person that's born again, every born again child of God, from the first to the last, is born again the same way. Everyone that's in heaven is in heaven for the same reason. Every person that has eternal life in them at this present time have it the same way by God's direct work on their heart. And what we see as children of God in this world is the evidence, a manifestation, an outward showing that God has performed that work. Let me ask you a question. If that work... That salvation is brought to the person through the means and instrumentalities of man. How does an infant in the womb get it? It's impossible. But yet I can show you throughout Scripture tiny infants that manifest God's grace in their life. Infants that cannot communicate with their mouth. Infants that could not understand with their mind. Infants that were not fully formed in the womb. I can show you they evident, they show evidence of the grace of God. Psalms chapter 22, there's a man named David. In verse 9 of Psalms chapter 22, David said this. He said, Thou, God, has made me to hope on my mother's breast. When he was on his mother's breast as an infant, unable to communicate, unable to receive knowledge as an adult, he said, I was already a born-again child of God. How could he be born again even at a time he's on his mother's breast? The only way possible is by the direct work of God. The Holy Spirit applying that salvation to him. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah says this. The Lord says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet to the nations. Before he formed thee, God said, I knew you. That knowing is not just a knowing about him. It's a knowing him in covenant. God chose him before the foundation of the world and loved him. And before he came forth out of the womb, God sanctified him by the direct work of his Holy Spirit. Jeremiah was a born-again child of God, even in his mother's womb. How did that happen? Well, Brother Ronnie, a gospel preacher, could not impart that knowledge to him. Brother Ronnie, we couldn't take the Bible, read it, and convince him. How was he a born-again child of God? The only way possible is that by the direct work of God. John the Baptist, John the Baptist... You remember when Mary comes to her cousin Elizabeth and tells her of those things that had happened, how she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit? Her being a virgin should bring forth a son that would call his name Jesus. And of course, it was told to Joseph, for he shall save his people from their sins. When she comes to Elizabeth, tells her these things. The Bible says Elizabeth being pregnant. John the Baptist, six months older than the Lord Jesus Christ. Six months old. By the way, that teaches you life begins at conception. <laughs> he was six months old in his mother's womb. Life begins at conception. John the Baptist, that person, John the Baptist, was six months old in his mother's womb. The Bible said he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Filled. I asked a person once, how much Holy Ghost do you have to have before we able to determine you're a born-again child of God? He was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And the Bible said he leaped for joy with excitement. Well, I'll tell you what happened, Brother Ronnie. There's a gospel preacher convinced him that Jesus is Lord. No, that's not what happened. God, in his direct work, had imparted life to John even when he's in his mother's womb. 
You know, I find over in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15 when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem. You know, there's many women that had their children just ripped from their arms and killed. Why? Because they're not going to benefit the nation. You know, the Babylonians' attitude was this. When we conquer a nation, if you can benefit our nation by doing work, we'll let you live. If you're not going to benefit our nation, we're not going to keep you up. And so women would see their children killed in their very presence. And the Bible said they were weeping. They were weeping and God comforted them. Comforted them. They, God told them this, that this, these little infants, that they would hold them again, refrain thine eyes from weeping and, and thy voice from tears, for they shall be brought again from the land of the enemy. The Bible says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. What God is saying is, dear sisters, you will hold your children again in glory one day. Why? Because they were already born again children of God. God's grace was able to get there before the Babylonians blame. Praise God. God's grace is greater than man. I find also in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod in his anger was trying to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. All those two years old and younger, they'll die. And that very same verse was quoted again in Matthew chapter 2. To comfort those sisters, one day they'll hold their children again in their arms. How? How is that possible? They didn't give consent of the mind. They're not able to communicate with their mouth by God's direct work of grace. And we're all born again the same way, same way. You know what I've done to become a child of God no more than David did? What have I done to become a child of God no more than John did? What have I done to become a child of God no more than what Jeremiah did? If I stand before you as a born-again child of God, and that's my hope. That's what I believe. I see enough evidence in my life. I have assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. It's only because God in His grace has directly worked on my heart. And I believe that happens to the covenant children of God very young in their life as a general rule. Sister Colleen Cox is here with us this morning. Sister Colleen and I are very close friends. Sister Colleen told me once, I can't ever remember a time in my life that I didn't love God. Sister Colleen looks back in her life. She can't ever remember a time. You know what that tells me, Sister Colleen? That God's grace was imparted to you at a very young age. Very young age. Not when you heard the gospel and believed. No, it was imparted to you before you believed because we know that whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And the Bible teaches us that no man can know God in our hearts unless God himself reveals himself to us, to us. Turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus declares this, this fact, this truth, that we cannot get to know God unless he first reveals himself to us. See, man in his fallen nature is not looking to know God. Psalms 10, 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. Psalms chapter 58, verse 3 and 4, you're not going to teach that man to look for God, to seek God, to become one with God. And he cannot be wooed and enticed by the words of men. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus said this, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man. Wow, we could underline that right there. No man. What does that mean, Brother Ronnie? That means no man. That's what it means. <laughs> That's easy enough, right? I mean, I didn't have to do any Greek study, Latin study, word study to know what it means. It means no man. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. What is, what is Jesus saying? No man know God unless I teach him to know God. Well, Brother Ronnie, what are you saying about the gospel preacher? What is, what is his purpose? The gospel preacher is not to teach the covenant children of God to know God, but to teach them about the God they already know in their heart. The battle of the gospel is not for the heart. It's for the mind, the mind of the child of God, that they would learn and understand about the Lord that's already in them. The Apostle Paul taught us there in Hebrews chapter 8 when he's teaching us about the two covenants of service. You know, there's two covenants of service. You got a covenant of service in the Old Testament. We got a covenant of service in the New Testament. 
And in the new covenant of service, we have more enlightenment and more knowledge than they had in the old covenant of service. And in this new covenant of service, we would not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother to know the Lord. For they all shall know him from the least to the greatest. How do they all know God? All the covenant children of God, all the elect. Because God himself would teach him, teach them to know, know him. And God is sure. God is faithful. Every one of the covenant children of God that he loved before the foundation of the world will know him. They'll be taught to know him at some point in their life. You know, the apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9, he was struck down on the road to Damascus. He wasn't looking for Jesus. Not in a spiritual sense. <laughs> he was looking for the followers of Jesus to persecute them. He was willing to hold the coats of individuals that would stone them. But at a time when he wasn't looking for God, God found him, him. Why? Why did he find him right there in Acts chapter 9? Because it was God's purpose to find him. And God found him and he struck him down. And when he struck him down, it was Saul that looked up. And he didn't say, Master, no. Mm -mm. You know, Judas would call the Lord Master, Master, meaning good teacher. Uh, Saul didn't say Master. No, he said Lord, Lord. He called him Lord. The Lord said, Saul, Saul, bam, he was struck down. The Lord called him to life and imparted life to him. You know what happened after that? Well, it was a happy day for Saul, wasn't it? No, it was a sad day. <laughs> he said in Romans chapter 7 and verse 9, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What is he saying? When the commandment of life came, sin revived and I died. I saw myself for the sinner that I am. And everything that I thought was good about me, vanished he didn't eat for three days he couldn't see have you ever felt so guilty for your sin you just you just sick your stomach oh i can't believe i did that you know what that is evidence that god has imparted life to you if you feel guilty for the wrongs that you've done you know psalm 73 and verse 5 the wicked through the pride of his countenance this pride of his countenance this wicked person they're not troubles of the men, neither they plagued as other men, Psalm 73, 5 says. The wicked, the man that's not born again, has never felt guilty for sin. If you feel guilty for wrong, it's evidence that God himself has imparted life to, to you, to you. I had a person come to me once, and he was talking to me about a church service that he was in. And, of course, it was a church that I had, I had attended when I was a little boy. And he said, you know, we had a lot of people come to the mourner's bench Try to get saved uh, last night, Ronnie. I said, have you ever noticed the text over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? The Bible says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He said, well, I've read that. I said, let me ask you. I said, those individuals that came to the mourner's bench, I said, when the hymn was being sang by the congregation and they were behind the pew and they was thinking about going to that mourner's bench. Was that pleasing to God for them to think about going? They said it had to be pleasing to God. I said, what about when they stepped out from the pew and made their journey down the aisle to that mourner's bench that you're saying they'll have to go to to become a child of God? Were they pleasing to God when they were walking down that mourner's bench to that mourner's bench? He said, oh yeah, that was, that was pleasing to God. I said, what about when they fell at that mourner's bench and wept on that mourner's bench with the tears, the guilt of their sin, pleading with God that they would be children of God. When they were doing that, I said, were they pleasing God when they did that? Oh, yes, they were. I said, that text says, but without faith it is impossible to please God. You said they pleased God by thinking about going behind the pew. They pleased God when they made their journey. They pleased God when they got on their knees. If it's true that without faith it's impossible to please God and they please God there, what we're saying is they had faith when they were behind the pew. And if they had faith when they were behind the pew, faith is the fruit of the Spirit. They were already born again children of God before they even made one step toward that mourner's bench. And what I'm preaching is before they got there, they were already born again children of God. And I'm not here to tell them they're not. I'm here to declare to them the truth and give them assurance they were already born again children of God. They're heaven bought, heaven bound, as my daddy used to say. They're hell proof by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did that happen by the direct imparting of grace by God? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is making reference to this work. Regeneration, the new birth, when 
the child of God, the covenant child of God is quickened to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul begins this chapter by confirming in their mind, giving them assurance that they are quickened by God's grace, meaning made alive. They're born again. The word quickened here is synonymous with being born again, synonymous with the circumcision of the heart made without hands, synonymous with regeneration in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. And you hath he quickened who were, notice what they were before they were quickened, dead in trespasses and sins. I asked a person once, how dead is dead? It's just dead. <laughs> There's no degrees of dead. It's just dead. They were dead to the things of God. They weren't seeking God. They weren't doing good. The fruit of the Spirit was not seen in their life, but it was God that directly imparted that life to them. Where in end times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all, Paul said, I was in the case with you. We were all dead in sin before God quickened us to life. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, the children of wrath even as others. What he's saying is being a son of Adam, I'm no different than somebody going to hell. No different. Well, what made the difference? Verse 4, but God, God made the difference. What made me different than someone going to hell? God made the difference. I didn't make a difference. I couldn't make a difference. God made the difference. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved. What is he saying? Is you, dear child of God, born again child of God, you were represented in Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. He had you in mind and you were represented in him and he paid for all your sins. When he went in the grave, you were in the grave with him and positionally when he come out of the grave, you come out of the grave with him. And when he ascended back to heaven, positionally, you're already there in glory. That's what that means. That's how sure your eternal salvation is. You being in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in Him, and just as sure as He's in heaven, praise God, the entire elect family of God will be there with Him one day without the loss of one. Verse 6, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come. Now he's going to make reference to this application of this in the new birth. Yeah, we were positionally in Christ. We were in Him before the world began. We were in Him at Calvary. But that salvation we have in Him was applied to us directly by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace, you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, I tell you what, if I can just get everybody to understand that verse 8 and that not of yourselves, man, the Primitive Church, Baptist Church has to be full. It's not of ourselves. That's easy enough, right? I didn't do anything to get it. It's all by grace. It's God that done it for me. And I want to tell you how sure it is to all the elect family of God is through God's faithfulness that everyone will have it. For by grace you are saved through God's faithfulness. What he's saying is you were in Christ before the world began. You were in Christ at Calvary. And through his faithfulness, because God is faithful to his promise, everyone that was chosen in him shall be born again without the loss of one. And everyone born again will be with him in glory. Nobody missing, nobody left behind. No empty seats. Jesus is not going to be a discouraged preacher in heaven saying, boy, I tell you what, I'm sorry they missed today. No, that's not going to happen to Jesus in heaven. I know sometimes I call folks trying to encourage you to come to church. I want to encourage people to come to church. I do. My Lord is not going to be in heaven discouraged because people are not there. No, by His power, by His grace, by His glory, all that He purposed to save will be there without the loss of one. Jesus will not be in heaven with tears coming out of His face and, oh, I just wish one more would have made a decision. No, if it's left up to our decision, we'd all be in hell. I told the brother once, he said, you know, we're all working to get to the same place. I said, yeah, and if God doesn't help us, we're all going to get there. It's God that did it for us. And because he's faithful, we'll all be with him in glory by his direct work. And we see these Thessalonians, 
that show forth this faith, that show forth this love, that show forth this patience of hope, what is showing evidence is this, God has already worked this directly in them. And the Apostle Paul, the next verse, he said, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, is he saying that they know it? No, he said, I know it. I know it. Paul said, I know you're the elect. Why? Because you're showing forth your faith. You're showing forth this love. You're showing forth this patience of hope. By their evidence and the way they live and the way they love God and the way they respond to the gospel, the Apostle Paul was assured they're the elect of God. They worked out their salvation. That God had worked in them to the outside that Paul saw it. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul makes reference to this communication. Us communicating what God has done in us to the outside that others could see. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says in verse 12 to these Macedonian brethren, he said, Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Yeah, I used to say, boy, my daddy was always happy when I behaved when he was there, but it really made him happy when I behaved and acted like a good little boy when he wasn't around. I can remember times when I didn't do so well. You know, when I do right, you know, daddy, he'd say, boy, I tell you, that's my boy. He does it right. When I do it wrong, he say, you know, he took a lot after his mama's folks. <laughs> Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out, work out. But notice what they're working out. They're working out their own salvation. It can't be your own unless you got it, okay? Does that make sense? Sometimes just one little word in a verse just makes it make sense. It's your own. Why? Because it's yours. God has given it to you. It's been imparted to you. And the Apostle Paul is encouraging them to work it out. Not work it out like a math problem. Work it from the inside to the outside. Others can see. See, when we're showing forth faith, we're showing forth our love of God and patience and hope. We're working to the outside this salvation that God has directly worked in us. When we come forward and ask for a home in the church, we're baptized. That's not when we become children of God. That's when we're telling the world, I believe when Jesus died, he died for me. When he was buried, I believe I was there with him. When he came out of the grave, I came out of the grave with him. And I want everybody to know, I believe he'd done this for me and I love him. And I'm going to show forth my appreciation for him saving me from the hell that I deserve. Verse 13, Philippians 2. For it is God which worketh in you. Not only has God worked, but he continues to work. God has worked eternal grace in you, but the same God that worked eternal grace in you is able to give you continual grace in your life that you would show forth this salvation to others. You know, working salvation to the outside, living right, it's not easy. It's, it's hard. It's hard. I've got a big enemy in my service to God in living right. You know who the biggest enemy I've got is? It's me. I'm a big enemy of myself. And I'm always fighting against myself. But the Bible teaches me if I'm fighting against myself, it's, it's another evidence I'm a born-again child of God. And I'm fighting, I'm fighting, and I, I need help. Well, where do I get that help? Well, the same one that worked that salvation in me is able to give me help in my life to the, that I can live to his glory. I love that text there in James chapter 4 and verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wow, that's a good text, isn't it? I want to tell you, I was listening to an older preacher, and the sermon was actually preached in the 1970s. And I think he gave me the best illustration for that text that I've, I've ever heard. But he giveth more grace. You know, down in Georgia, we never pronounce our words. You know, it's tomato. You know, you don't, if you hear someone in Georgia say tomato, you know they're not from Georgia. <laughs> we call it maters. You know, banana, we don't say banana, we call it manners. Taters, we call it taters. We, we abbreviate everything. Well, there's a family that was sitting together one morning, and they were having pancakes. And the little boy is at the table, looked up and said, I want some lasses. He meant molasses. I want some lasses. Well, his daddy kind of rolled his eyes and said, son, you meant molasses. He said, daddy, you can't give me molasses because you never gave me any lasses. <laughs> Think about that. In order to get more 
You already had to have some to start with, right? But God giveth more grace. For God to give more grace, he already gave you grace to start with, right? God giveth more grace. What grace is that? That's temporal grace to help us. Not only has God made you alive, but God is able to give you more grace, temporal grace, to help you live right in your life. So that when we fail, it's not God's fault. Whose fault is it if we fail? If I fail, whose fault is it? God's fault? No, it's my fault. I, God is sufficient. We know his grace is sufficient. So when we fail, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. You know, if I fail to preach the gospel, it's not God's fault. It's my fault. If we fail to do us right, it's not God's fault. It's my fault. I'm the one that made a mistake. And God is providing for us daily and we can look to him. I want to tell you, if he can give that much manna to feed the children of Israel for those 40 years, I think he can help us daily in our lives. And Jesus said, when we pray, we ought to pray after this manner, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, this day, our daily bread. Daily. God is able to daily load us with benefits that we could show forth his salvation. What do you think Jesus meant in Matthew 5, 16 when he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Is it possible to show forth light unless you got light? Have you ever went down the highway and looked at houses, had light coming out the window, and thought, well, I'm sure the power company's just about ready to turn on their power? No, that never happened. When you see the lights coming out the window, you know they got power to that house. When we see people showing forth the light of God in their life, we know the power of God is but life already there, there in, in them. Let's finish this up, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 14, he said, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. That's, that's the same thing I just said about Matthew 5, 16, isn't it? So we work it to the outside. Here's another type of communication. There in verse 4, working, communicating this salvation that God has directly worked in us to the outside that others, others could see. Verse 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. Third type of communication here is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is God using a man to communicate the truth to other children of God. That's it. That's what the gospel does. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is what the means that God has given us, and he calls men directly to do this, to communicate truth to the mind of the child of God. Not to populate heaven, but to communicate information to the born-again child of God that they would know more about the Lord that's already in their heart. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and the Apostle Paul says this about the gospel. He said in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's a big statement. What is he saying? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'll preach it anywhere. I told a man once, if it's the truth, you need to preach it everywhere. If it's not the truth, it doesn't need to be preached anywhere. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, what we believe, I am happy to preach it anywhere in this world. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. That word power right there is from the Greek Dunamis, when we derive the word dynamite, what he's saying is the gospel is dynamite. <laughs> the gospel's dynamite. I don't tell you, it made a big difference in my life. I mean, the gospel can change the life of a child of God, that information and truth. For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, therein the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. How did faith exist if life didn't exist? What it's saying is it's from the truth to the born-again child of God. To the one that's able to believe because they're already born again. The gospel's to them. And it reveals the light, the righteousness of God. That God in doing right and loving his people, the sovereign God before the foundation of the world. And Jesus doing right, he came into this world and done good, satisfied the Father on the cross of Calvary. That Jesus lives right now, and he's on the right hand of the Father. And one day, praise God, he's going to come back and get me and save me from this temporal world. 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. 
Apostle Paul writes to Timothy here, who is more than likely the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He said in verse 9, Of God who hath saved us, not trying to save, He hath saved us. He's directly imparted eternal life to us and called us with a holy calling. But notice this was not according to our works, 2 Timothy 1.9. Not according to our works. We didn't do anything to get it. I told a person once, if I didn't do anything to get it, I can't do anything to lose it. Well, I'm happy about that. <laughs> not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now. Now, what does now mean? It means right now. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, light through the gospel. The gospel brought light, enlightenment to the mind of the born-again child of God that they would know about the Lord in their mind that saved them by His grace. The Apostle Paul said something to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1. He said that the minds of their understanding being enlightened. That's in verse 18. That word enlightened is derived from the Greek photosio. It's where we derive the word photograph. What is Paul saying here? He said, I've preached to you and you got the picture. You ever said that to someone? When you saw them understand something, oh, you got the picture. What Paul is saying is, I've preached this information to you, born again children of God, you've got the picture. You understand. How did they understand in their mind? How did they get the picture? Through the information of the gospel. Why is the man of God preached? To get people in heaven? No, no, no. That's not what the apostle Paul said. It was for the perfecting of the saints and for the edifying of the body of Christ, not to get people in heaven. But the children of God would know how to live a mature life as children of God here in this world. The Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, he communicated this information to them. And that's my hope as a minister of the gospel, that I would take this information of the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit would bless me to understand and communicate it to other children of God because it's my desire for people to believe the truth. I want people to believe the truth. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. What is he saying? This is the truth and everybody should believe it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And Paul, he spent his life that people would believe the truth. Fourth type of communication in this. Verse 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men... We were among you for your sakes, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. That communication there is by example. The Apostle Paul communicated to them a godly example by the way he lived. They knew what manner of man he was by the way he lived. And the Bible calls on us to communicate a godly life and example to other children of God that they could look to us and say, you know, I think they're trying to do, do right. You know, Titus chapter 2 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul told Titus in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. What is he saying? Do things right that people could see you doing things right. You know, the Bible teaches us about individuals who didn't communicate a godly life to others and how detrimental that was to the people around them, even their children. Do you remember David, 2 Samuel chapter 11, when he, he lied with Bathsheba, committed adultery? And the Lord forgave him, but the Lord through Nathaniel said, you know, the sword will never leave your house. Do you know David, because of that, he lost all influence with his kids. Amnon, Adonijah, Absalom, he had no influence with them. Why do you think Absalom had so little respect for his daddy? Can you see Absalom? You know, David says, you know, son, you need to do this. I don't think you have a place to tell me what to do. I, I know what you did. He lost it. He lost it by not communicating a godly life by example to his son. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? You remember when he was in Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, Lot, basically, he, he was a born-again child of God, and he was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was prospering from the ungodliness of that city. He was in the gate. I mean, Lot was a man that if he lived in today's world, he'd be mixed up with all this ungodliness in the world, making money on it. 
Well, the Lord sent the two angels there because Abraham prayed for Lot. Wow, what an effect one prayer a man praying will have on the heart of God that God sent two angels there to warn Lot. And the Bible teaches us when Lot tried to warn his son-in-laws, he just seemed as a man that mocked. You know what they said? <laughs> you old fool, don't you tell us what to do. You know, we know what you've been doing here in this city. He lost his influence. Why? Because he did not show forth a godly example in his life. You know, the Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter 18 if concerning these little ones. Jesus makes reference to us despising not one of these little ones. Because if we cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for us if a millstone was tied about our necks and was cast in the depths of the sea. What does that mean? That means God does not smile on individuals that causes other children of God to stumble by poor example. Now that should cause us to fear, fear. And that should cause us to desire to live a godly life. You know, it's not guaranteed that your children are going to do right. Adults, it's not guaranteed. You know, Hezekiah was a man that tried to do right. His son Manasseh ended up being one of the most ungodly men in Israel's history. But I'll tell you, it sure does help. It sure does help. When you try to do what's right in your life. You know, Joshua and Sarah Beth, they're going to know, they're going to know I'm not a perfect man. I'm not perfect. But I ask God to help me to live my life in such a way that I would not be the stumbling block for my children in this world. That they can look to me and say, you know, Daddy's not perfect. But he tried to do what's right. You know, I think about my mom and daddy, Elder Marvin, Sister Faye, Louder Milk. I'll tell you, my daddy was a perfect man. My mama, she's not, she's not perfect. I know she's not perfect. I've been around her enough to know she's not. Now, I'm going to say that here, but I'm not going to say that when she's up here, okay? <laughs> she, she, she may tighten up my necktie after service. <laughs> you know, you'd be amazed at things that happen during a handshake with mamas and sons. <laughs> <laughs> but my mama put forth every effort to be a good example to me. And I thank God for it. Dear children of God, us that are on the pews here, that we want to be a good example to other children of God in the world. You know, the best way to be a good example be faithful to the Lord and His service. And if we're faithful to the Lord in service, it's not going to guarantee everyone's going to see that example and do what's right. It's not going to guarantee our kids, but I tell you what, it don't hurt. It sure does help. And I tell you what, it'll give us a lot more peace in our lives living close to the Lord. So may God bless us to communicate, to communicate a good example to other children of God by the way we live. May God richly bless us our prayer. Is anyone here this morning?